Now, we come to chapter 6, and we have here the call and commission of Isaiah to the prophetic office. Now, chronologically and logically, this probably ought to be chapter 1, but this is the way it's in the book, and this is the way it should stand. But here you have the call of Isaiah, and it takes us back to the time when his ministry began, and his ministry began actually at the death of Uzziah the king. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. Verse 1, and you have here in these first four verses the time, place, person, glory, and holiness of the Lord in the vision that's seen by Isaiah. Now, we have here the time and the place and the person. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, Isaiah here opens on a very doleful note by taking us to the funeral of Uzziah. You see, he was not unlike the ilk of mankind. Good King Uzziah was dead. Now, Uzziah had been a good king. Actually, it is the belief of a great many that Uzziah was the last great king of the southern kingdom, and that, very frankly, at his death, the glory no longer was evident. You do not see the glory again among those people. And I'm not sure but what that is true, because Uzziah had been a good king, and he had brought the Philistines, the Arabians, and the Ammonites into subjection. And he had ruled for 52 years, and the nation had been blessed during that period materially, for God had promised them that. And as Dalich says, the national glory of Israel died out too with King Uzziah and has never recovered to this day. And I, by the way, heartily concur in that. Now, in the year that King Uzziah died, and now the thing that Isaiah's thinking is this. He thinks, well, good King Isaiah's dead. Things are going to the bow-wows now. My Israel will be taken captive. We'll be made subject to our enemies round about us, and prosperity will cease, and depression will come, and famine will come again. Well, in that frame of mind, he did what every person ought to do. He says, I went into the temple. I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne. And he went to the proper place where you can meet with God. And in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. And that's in Psalm 29, 9. And he made a discovery when he went into the temple he discovered that the true king of the nation, Israel, was not dead. <laughs> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. God was still on the throne. He has already told us, don't put your confidence in man whose breath is in his nose. You just exhale and you don't know whether you're going to get it back the next time or not. You may have a coronary, and out you go. Don't put your confidence in man. 
good old King Uzziah's dead, yes. And the throne looks pretty bleak right now, but back of the earthly throne is the heavenly throne. He saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. And I'm not sure, but that is a vision that some of God's people need today. I see no reason for being pessimistic today. This is the greatest day in the history of the world. I'd rather live right now than any period in the history of the world. Somebody says, oh, look at the conditions in the world. Sure, bad. Look at the conditions in our nation. Bad. Look at the conditions in our cities. Bad. Well, fine. But did you know that the Lord Jesus said it's going to be that way? He told about tares that were going to be sown in among the wheat. But did you know also the wheat's going to grow too? And today they're both heading up, tares and wheat. He said, let them both grow together. And therefore, my business is sowing today because I know that the Word of God is going to bring forth some kind of a harvest and it's heading up today. No question about that. But we don't need to be discouraged. He said he'll take care of the harvest after all. Our business is to sow the seed and get the Word of God out. And this is a great day to live. Did you know the Word of God is going out today more than it ever has before? May I say to you, Today, I am reaching on this broadcast right now more people in this 30-minute period than I ever reached in a five-year period when I was pastor. And for 21 years, I had the privilege of probably having one of the largest congregations of any fundamental pastor in America today or any Bible-believing church. And that was a great privilege. But that's nothing compared to the number of people that we can reach today with the Word of God. May I say to you, the Word of God's going out today, not only here, but in these other places. And God is getting His Word out, and it's going around the world. And I want to say to you, I know it's bad. Tires are sure growing, let me tell you. But say, we got a good stand of wheat. Did you know that? And it's coming right along. I thank God as I travel across this country telling my wife that the other day, the wonderful friends that we've met. Just let me mention a few places. Over yonder in Buffalo, New York, down in Sarasota, Florida, down in Boca Raton, down in Miami, why in all those places, in St. Petersburg, and then in Atlanta, Georgia, and on up in Chicago, and on up in Portland, Oregon, and out in the Hawaiian Islands. Oh, my Friend, the wheat is growing today. Can't you rejoice in that? Well, Isaiah, he went in the temple. He found out the Lord is still on the throne, and some of us need to recognize it. God is still on the throne. He still hears and answers prayer, and he's still doing a wonderful thing. And he made another discovery when in that. He says that he was sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. God is high and lifted up. And that's the second thing that we need to discover about God, that God is high and lifted up. Verse 2, Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Now you have here the seraphim that are about the throne of God. 
Now, I want to confess that I know very little about seraphim, but apparently the seraphim is the one in contrast to the cherubim. The seraphim searches out sin, and the cherubim protect the holiness of God. The seraph, and it means to burn, by the way, and the word is used as a verb with the sin offering, but never with the burnt offering. That which speaks of the person of Christ, never. But that which speaks of his work of redemption for us, the word is used, seraph. It speaks of burning holiness and cherub of the inflexible righteousness of God. The seraph is active. The cherub is passive. And we'll find both of them in Ezekiel and Revelation as the living creatures, but we'll wait till we get there to talk about that. So the seraphim here are protecting the holiness of God. He's high and lifted up. Now, God today will not compromise with evil. And I thank him for that, that he won't compromise with evil in your life or my life, because it's evil and sin that has brought all the sorrow in this world. It's the thing that puts the gray in the hair, the totter in the step, the stoop in the shoulder. And it is the thing today that breaks up homes. It breaks up lives. It fills our graves. I'm glad God won't compromise with it. God says he hates sin and he intends to destroy it. He intends to remove it from his universe. And today, our God is moving forth uncompromisingly, unhesitatingly, undeviatingly against sin, and he doesn't intend to accept the white flag of surrender from it. He intends to drive it from his universe. That's what he says. He's high and lifted up. My friend, you and I are going to have to bow before him as when we see this man Isaiah, when he got this vision of God on the throne and high and lifted up. It brought him down upon his face. And if there is one thing today, and I mentioned many things, but if there is one thing at this particular juncture, I'd like to say that the church needs, it needs another vision of God, not just of his love, but the fact that our God is a holy God, a righteous God, and he moves in judgment. And you know, he never asked me to apologize for him. And you want to know something? I don't intend to apologize for him. This is what he said. And I think that he'd like for me to add this. Take it or leave it. <laughs> you can shut your eyes and push your head down in the sand like an ostrich is supposed to do, but every ostrich got more sense than that. But my friend, you can't destroy what the Word of God says. God is angry against sin. God will punish sin. He says he will. But he loves you, friend. He'll save you. But you know, you'll have to come his way. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Verse 3 says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And friends, this is a picture of the holiness and the glory of our God. He's high and lifted up, and we need to see him that way. And if we had seen him that way today, it would deliver us from low living, and it would deliver us from this easy familiarity that some seem to have with Jesus. They talk of him as if he's a buddy. 
and as if they can speak to him anyway. And my friend, you're not going to rush into the presence of God. You can't rush into his presence. He just doesn't permit that. If you come to the Father through Christ, that's the only way he can be approached today. And you never get in there because of who you are. You get in there because you're in Christ. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The Lord Jesus made that very clear. And if we are his child, we can come with boldness, but we come to a throne of grace. If you attempt to come to God today on any other basis than the grace of God that's been extended to you in Christ, friend, you won't make it. He just doesn't let you in on any other basis. He's high. And we are told here, one cried to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, the seraphim here repeat this monotonous refrain to the high holiness of our God. And this all sets before us the one great fact that God is still on the throne and he's a holy God. He'll not compromise with evil one whit. And he's moving forward to eliminate it from his universe. Now, what is the effect that's going to have on Isaiah? Will you note verse 5? Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, this man, Isaiah, was God's man before this experience, but this experience had a tremendous effect upon him. It revealed to him his condition. When he saw God, he could see himself. And the problem with many of us today is that we don't walk in the light of the Word of God. If we did, we'd see ourselves. That's exactly what John meant in the first chapter of his first epistle. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Because if you walk in the light, you're going to see exactly what Isaiah saw, that you're undone and that you're a man of unclean lips. You've really never seen the Lord, friend, if you feel like that you are worthy or you merit something or you have some claim upon him because you and I do not at all have any claim upon him. Now, this was not only the experience of Isaiah, but very briefly, if I may go back and remind you of Job. You remember Job was a self-righteous man. Job could maintain his integrity in the presence of his friends that were attempting to tear him to bits. And they were attempting to quarter him and scatter him to the four corners of the earth. They told him he was a rotten sinner, but he looked them straight in the eye, and he says, as far as I know, I'm a righteous man. And from his viewpoint, he was right, and he won the match against those friends. But my friend... He wasn't perfect. He came in the presence of God, you remember. And when God appeared to him and let him see who he is, this man, Job, no longer begins to talk about 
that he is going to maintain his righteousness. He said, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. My friend, if you will walk in the light of the Word of God, you'll see yourself and you'll know even as a child of God that you need the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all sin. That is the picture of mankind today. And that is the picture that you have here of this man Isaiah. You find out that this was the reaction of other men that came into the presence of God. John could say on the Isle of Patmos, I fell at his feet as dead. And Daniel said there wasn't any strength that was left in him when he came into the presence of God. And that was also the experience of Ezekiel. Ezekiel could cry out that way. And Saul of Tarsus could see himself no longer as a self-righteous Pharisee, but as a lost sinner and one needed to be saved. And he says, "...what was gained to me I counted loss that I might win Christ." He saw his need of Jesus Christ. Now, we find here that immediately when a man comes in confession to him, God is there. We're told, "...then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with the tongs from off the altar." Now, the very interesting thing is that we're seeing here that this living coal has come from the burnt altar where sin has been dealt with. In the next chapter, we're going to have the virgin birth of Christ. Now, it's not the incarnation of Christ that saves us, it's his death upon the cross. This man here needed the live coal from off the altar, and that altar speaks of the death of Christ, the burnt altar does. And this living coal speaks of the cleansing blood of Christ that cleanses sinners from all sin. For the blood of Christ, God's Son, just keeps cleansing us from all sin. What a picture that we have here. Now he says, "...he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged." Now he touched his lips. He is a man of unclean lips. And the condition is confession, of course. As John again, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I believe, therefore, that this glowing coal that we have here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and that now the one that was high and lifted up on the throne was the one that was lifted up on a cross also. And it's absolutely essential that he be lifted up because he came down to this earth and became one of us that he might become the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so the lips of this man is cleansed, and I take it that this is just an external manifestation of the fact that the inner man, it's what proceeds out of the heart of man that goes through the lips, 
And when the lips are cleansed, it means his heart was cleansed also. Now, what we have here is this man who says he's undone is the same one as Paul the apostle when he cried out in Romans 7, Woe is me! Only he said, O wretched man that I am! He was not a lost sinner there, but he was a saint of God learning a lesson from God that he needed to walk in the Spirit and he couldn't live for God by himself. And it can only be accomplished by divine grace. And we are told here that there is a certain responsibility. Paul said that to a young preacher, Second Timothy. In the second chapter, he says, "...if a man purge himself from these..." And therefore, we need to have the application of the redemption of Christ applied to our life again and again and again. Now, will you notice that after he's cleansed, that there's something happens here. And I'm going to read now verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Now he says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Now it's quite interesting, up to this time, this man, Isaiah, never heard the call of God. I think a great many Christians today that have not felt like they're called to do anything for God is simply because of the fact that they need cleansing. They haven't seen their great need as Christians. And friends, God's not going to use a dirty vessel. I can assure you that. He just doesn't do it. Now, it is quite true that there have been certain ones that have given out the Word of God, and God has blessed their Word. But God in time has judged them. And I don't dare mention them, but we have had here in Southern California certain ministers that for a while the blessing of God was upon them. And then they got into sin. And friends, I tell you, it wasn't long until the judgment of God came upon them. You have to be cleansed if you're going to hear the call of God. And now he hears the call, "'Whom shall I send and who will go for us?' And I don't need to call your attention to the fact that we have here the singular and the plural. And I believe it's the Trinity that we have. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The Trinity. Then said I, here am I, send me. And now this man hears the call for the first time. And he responds to the call as a cleansed individual well, there are too many people today being asked to do something in the church who, first of all, ought to get things straightened out with the Lord. They need to have their lips touched with a living coal. They need to make confession of the sin that's in their lives because their service will be sterile and it will be frustrating and be in vain until that takes place. Now, will you notice the commission that's given to Isaiah? And he said, go and tell. <laughs> that's the message. You go and tell. This people, 
Now, this is a strange message, and I want to be very careful at this point here, because he's asked to do something that's very, very strange. He says, go and tell this people. I hope we understand that this people at that time meant the nation Israel. Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? Now, this would look, as you read it, that the prophet is being sent to blind and to deafen and to harden people. And yet, I want to be very careful now. I think we can safely say that God never hardens hearts that would otherwise be soft, and that they owe their hardness to the very fact that He brings it out. He doesn't make it that way. He does not blind the eyes of those that want to see, but apart from His intervention, they would never see of course. And it's but the foolish blasphemy of men and the enmity of God that will argue that God hardens or God blinds. He doesn't do that. And I think that we have a illustration in Scripture. And it's the light that was shining in the darkness, and yet they did not see. The Lord Jesus said, "...if the light in your darkness, how great is that darkness." Now, I'm going to illustrate here with two illustrations, and I hope to get them in. If you take a lantern out to a barn, as I did as a boy in southern Oklahoma, you take a lantern out to a barn at night to milk that old muley cow that I used to have to milk, and you go to the corn crib, what happens? Well, the two things happen. The minute you bring light in that barn... The rats, they make for cover. Boy, they scurry around. You can hear them taking off. And then the little birds that are roosting up in the rafters, they begin to sing, twitter around. Now, light causes one to flee and the other to begin to sing. Now, did the light make a rat a rat? No, he's a rat before the light got there. All the light did was reveal he's a rat, my friend. (laughs) And the light, that comes into the world. The Lord Jesus was that light, and it did two things. It caused the birds to sing and the rats to run. Let me illustrate that. Years ago, there was an explosion in a mine in West Virginia, and a great many men were blocked off because of a cave-in. And after several days, they dug through to them, and one of the first things that got to them was a light. And when the light came on, a fine young man standing there that was one of the miners that had been trapped, he said, when the light came on, he says, why doesn't someone turn on the light? And all the other miners looked at him startled. They knew he'd been blinded by the explosion. But, friend, it took the light to reveal that he was blind. God blinds nobody. God hardens no heart. That when the light shines in, it reveals what an individual is, my beloved. And therefore, that's what you have here. And that is exactly when the Lord Jesus quoted this passage 
And it's a very important passage. That's exactly what he meant. Now, we have over in Corinthians, it's in 2 Corinthians, it's the second chapter. Will you listen to this? Verse 14, "...now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish." To the one we are savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, who's sufficient for these things. And I'm sure I'm not. But I often said when I was pastor of the church and would give an invitation, and there would be some that would accept. And then I would say, if you are here this morning and have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, you came in here a lost person, and you're going out a lost person, may I say to you, that I'm no longer your friend. I couldn't be, because you can't now go into the presence of God and say that you have not heard the gospel. You see what they would be? They would be the blind that now are revealed as blind because they've rejected Jesus Christ, my friend. They were blind. He didn't make them blind, but he's the light that reveals the blindness, my friend, And we always triumph. We like to boast of the number that are saved today. I want to say to you, I'd much rather boast of the fact of the thousands and right now several million people that are hearing the Word of God. That's the important thing. That's my business. And it's the business of the Spirit of God to touch hearts. Now, you'll recall that I mentioned last time that the prophet, had to speak into a local situation to prove to the people at that time that he was a prophet of God. And so he would speak concerning a local situation, and when that was fulfilled, then the far-off prophecy would be true. God always made that a test. Now, Isaiah gives this prophecy of the virgin birth, and he gives it to the whole house of Israel. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now, this was for the house of David. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, somebody in that day might say, well, look here, brother Isaiah. What about this? When will this take place? I have a notion he could look down through the centuries and say, It'd probably be a long time. Well, they would say, then, how do we know it's going to be true? Well, the way they're going to know it's going to be true is because of the fact that God had spoken through Isaiah on many things that were fulfilled in the days of those people. Now, one of them was this. When Hezekiah was king, the Assyrians came outside of the walls of Jerusalem, 150,000 strong. And it looked bad for Jerusalem, and it looked as if it would fall. So that Hezekiah the king went into the temple, got down on his knees and, I think, on his face before God, and cried out to him for deliverance. And God sent Isaiah in, and he said to him, "'You don't need to worry.'" The Assyrian will not come into this city. He'll not take it. And not only that, but not an arrow will be shot in this city. 
Well, there are 150,000 soldiers out there. And each one of them's got a quiver on his back that's full of arrows. And each one has a bow. And you would think out of 150,000, there may be a trigger-happy soldier out there. And he might say one evening, well, I think I'll just shoot an arrow over the wall into the city and see if anybody over there hollers ouch. And if any soldier had shot an arrow into that city, this man Isaiah would have been a false prophet. But not a soldier shot an arrow. And that city was spared, and the Assyrian didn't take it. May I say it's on that basis and other prophecies that he gave that have already been fulfilled. But now this one of the virgin birth for those people was way down in the future. But my friend, for us today, it's already transpired. Now there's always been a discussion, and I would like to back this up with a little bit of background. Ahaz had come to the throne of Judah, and Ahaz was a bad king. Fact of the matter is, his father before him, Jotham, had been a good king. His grandfather, Uzziah, had been a good king. And his son after him was a good king. But Ole has. He was a rascal. So God wanted to encourage him, and God wanted to help him. And so there was actually civil war taking place. The kingdom in the north had lined up with Syria. And today, that seems strange to us with the war between the Arab and the Jew being as intense as it is, and probably Syria, the most fanatical enemy of all. Well, in that day, Syria and the northern kingdom teamed up, and they are going to fight against Ahaz. looks bad for Ahaz. So God sent Isaiah out to meet him. Now he gave him a word of encouragement. And he said to him that he need not worry, that God would deliver him. Now he says, in order that you might know, ask a sign of God. Ask for a sign. Well, this King Ahaz, he was a very pious, very pious fraud, by the way. Verse 12 of Isaiah 7 reads, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Oh, what a pious fraud he was. (laughs) And I hear a lot of that false piosity today. I heard a lady make this statement. I very frankly don't enjoy flying. I do a great deal of it, but I don't enjoy it. And this lady knew about it. And she says, it's just due to a lack of faith. She says, we pray. My husband and I pray before we get on a plane, and we know it's not going to fall. Well, my friend, that's not faith, that's foolishness. You don't know at all. And then there was a lady here in this area of California that went to a so-called faith healer and said she was healed of cancer. And she always added, it's too bad Dr. McGee doesn't go to that faith healer and get healed himself. Well, I need not tell you, I guess, that she's buried not long ago He died of cancer, by the way. That's foolishness. I think she should have gone to the best specialist that there was. That's what I did. And I went to a man's a Christian, too. And 
I trusted the Lord, put my life in His hand, and I turned the case over to the great physician. And I think when we do all we can, He does all He can then. Faith is never foolishness. And God's saying to this king, I know how you feel. God knew his heart. He was afraid, fearful. Now ask a sign. And this pious fraud says, I won't ask, I won't tempt God. And he's a rascal, friends. Faith is never a leap in the dark. It's not a happenstance. It is not shutting your eyes and expecting things to work out. Faith always rests on fact. God asks you to trust Christ because he's a historical fact today. He asked people before then to bring a little sacrifice. That helped their faith. But today, you and I look back to a historical fact that he's come, and this has been fulfilled. Will you notice what God says to him? God says, listen, verse 13, And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary man, but will ye weary my God also? God says, you make me sick at my tummy. You weary me. You make me tired talking like that. Now, this is the verse we're going to look at now for just a few moments. Listen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this chapter, by reason of this verse, has become one of the most controversial chapters in Scripture. And unbelievers have quite naturally discounted it, and they've sought desperately but in vain for a loophole to reject the virgin birth. The battle has been waged about the meaning of the Hebrew word here for a virgin, It's the Hebrew word Alma, and it's translated virgin. But the very interesting thing is that in the Revised Standard Version, which first came out, it was translated young woman at first, and virgin is put as a note. It should have been reversed, of course. And it was an argument that had to do with what is the meaning of the word Alma. And the insistence was that all it meant was actually just a young woman. And it is true that there are places where it is translated young woman and not translated virgin. But you can be sure of one thing. It always means virgin, and I'd like to illustrate that. I'm going to turn to the 24th chapter of the book of Genesis, and at verse 43 here, and I'd like for you to notice this verse, because this, by the way, is a point in question. And here in verse 43, I read this, and this, by the way, and I should give the background here, this was when Abraham's servant went down to get a bride for Isaac. And now he's giving his story of how he's come to that land, and he has now met Rebekah. And in verse 43, "...behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink." Well, it's certainly understood what the kind of a bride now that this man wants for 
his master's son, Isaac. Well, let me drop back now to verse 16 in this chapter. Notice what is said there. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. Now, that's a different word. Could be translated by young woman. Neither had any man known her. (laughs) So, you see, it's protected. I don't think that anyone could misunderstand what's being said here, that regardless even of the word, but when the word Alma is used here, it has to do with a virgin, and it means no man had known her. I sometimes wonder about the liberal who says the Bible does not teach the virgin birth. It used to be a very prominent preacher in Los Angeles here that denied it and said the Bible didn't teach it. Always felt like calling him up and asking him if his papa had talked to him when he was a boy about the birds and the bees. He needed a talk on that. My friend, this is clear. Now, you can deny the virgin birth, but you can't deny that Isaiah and Matthew are making it very clear that they are talking about the virgin birth. And so this word here is a word, I think, that makes it very clear that it means not only an unmarried woman. Now, a very fine Hebrew scholar in the East told me this several years ago. He said the problem, and this was at the time of this revised translation. And by the way, I've noticed that some of the later editions of the Revised Standard Version have changed it back to virgin. I guess that the heat was on them, and some of them at least have changed it back. But the old editions, of course, is not changed. And they attempted to make a change that's not there at all. But it's well for us to note this. And I think the thing that is conclusive is the fact that when this is quoted over in the Gospel of Matthew, that The Greek word there, there's no controversy about it. It is the Greek word parthenos. The Parthenon, the ruins in Athens, that was to the Greek goddess Athena. And believe me, the Greeks emphasize the fact she was a virgin. And there's been no controversy about that. And this is the way the Holy Spirit interpreted it in the Greek, you see. So that when it is quoted over here, And the angel that appeared to Joseph made it very clear. And I think I should turn over and read that section now. Verse 18 of Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. In other words, this is the way it happened. Because he's made a very strange thing. He said, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and Jacob begat Joseph, a husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, he's called Christ. Well, something's been changed. Joseph is not the father. That's what's being claimed here. Now, he's going to tell you this is the way it happened. When as his mother Mary was a spouse, she was engaged to Joseph, before they came together, that's obvious that Joseph was not the father. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, 
Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's the angel's testimony. And she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, this word here, behold, a virgin shall be with child, is the Greek word parthenos. Now, the Holy Spirit chose this word because he had given the word Alma to Isaiah, and Alma means virgin. (laughs) Now, this Hebrew scholar said this to me. He said, it is possible for a man to have three daughters. And somebody asked him, how many daughters you have? He says, I have three daughters. Two are married, and one is a girl at home. Now, if you would raise some question about when he used that word girl, what he meant, you'd say, well, you certainly don't mean a virgin. I think he'd hit you in the nose, friend, because that's what he means. And this scholar said to me, these liberals do not have the feel of the language. That's a very interesting thing, by the way, so that it's quite clear. But the thing here that to me is the most amazing thing of all is this. He was never called Emmanuel. It says here, they shall call his name Emmanuel. And you can't find any place in the Gospels where he was called Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. Oh, you say they called him Jesus. That's right. And he's going to save his people from their sins. But friends, he can't save people from their sin unless he is Emmanuel, God with us. So every time you call him Jesus, whether you like it or not, you're saying God with us. Because Jesus means he's going to save people from their sins, and he can't save people from their sins unless he is Emmanuel. So the very liberal that says Jesus today is saying he's a Savior. He saved his people from their sins, and that means he's Emmanuel, God with us, for no man Just being a man could have done that. How wonderful this is. Oh, on this day, he's Emmanuel. He's God with us today. And God for us. And the God who has saved us today. Because we have a Savior. Born of a virgin. How important that is. Now, as your bus driver, I want to say that I'm coming on strong, but many of you can tell by now that I have developed a little cold that has settled in my throat. I guess that's my weakest place. I used to have it settle in my head, and I'd tell folk that a friend of mine said, well, it always goes to your weakest point. Well, I guess it's my throat now. Now, We want to go to the seventh chapter and get the first part of it because I did not deal in any length with the background for the giving of the prophecy 
of the virgin birth. And the background is this, and I would like to cover it. Now, let me say that in verse 1, and I'll read it. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now, this is actually civil war, because the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are fighting against each other. And this, may I say, was something very, very serious indeed. In fact, so much so that the king now was Ahaz. And Ahaz was not a good king, as we have already noted, that Isaiah began his period of a prophet formally at the time of the death of Isaiah. He lived during the reign of Isaiah, at least a portion of it, and he may or may not have prophesied. But we do have his commission and call to the prophetic office in the sixth chapter, which we looked at last time. Now, after him there came Jotham, and Jotham was the king that reigned 16 years. Now, Isaiah reigned 52 years, but Jotham was a good king. And Micah the prophet prophesied at this time. Then we have the reign of Ahaz. He reigned 16 years. And friends, he was a bad king. And I mean a very bad king indeed. And it was during this time that you have the time of the civil war. And this is a time of great distress in Israel. Now, if you want to know how bad this man was, I'm going to turn over to Second Kings, the 16th chapter, verse 2. Will you listen to this? Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord as God, like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and all of them were bad, of course. Yea, and made his son to pass through the fire. Now, that was the worst kind of heathenism and paganism of that day. And we have this added here in verse 3 of Second Kings 16. According to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, this man, Ahaz, was a bad egg. I can assure you that. And he was frightened because he had no assurance when the confederacy in the north, because Israel in the north teamed up with Syria and came down against him. They did not prevail at first, but he had every reason to believe that they finally would. 
Now, it was told, verse 2, it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of the people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Now, he could not expect the blessing of God upon him or the nation. And as a result, the alliance of Rezin, king of Syria, with Pekah, king of Israel, terrified him and his people. You see, each one in the north had come against him separately, but had not prevailed. But now together, he's confident that they'd be able to take Jerusalem. Now, in spite of the fact that he's a godless king, God's not ready to let these people go into captivity. And there's one thing for sure. They're not going into captivity in the north. And therefore, they will go ultimately to Babylon. But that's many years off at this particular time. And so the thing that happened is this. Isaiah is sent to him to encourage him. And we're told in verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, this, frankly, is a very wonderful prophecy that we have here. And I want to lift out several things here because it has a wonderful spiritual meaning. First of all, if you'll notice where he's to go, he's to go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool. And the end of the conduit of the upper pool is where the water from the aqueduct poured its life-giving waters into Jerusalem. And that brought them down from the upper pool where the people could come and quench the thirst of the needy. Well, that is way down at the end, you see. You can't get much satisfaction from a pipe filled with water. You must have a spigot along somewhere. You must come to where it pours out of the pipe. Now, you're not going to get any blessing from the house of David. Well, way down at the end, there's one coming. And it was no accident that the Lord Jesus said that he was the water of life. He'd come in the line of David to bring the water of life at the end of the conduit. It's quite interesting. Now, the word here for pool, it's at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. And that word, berikah, we get our word blessing from that. And that really is the meaning of the root word, a pool of water. Because in that land, I can assure you, a pool of water is a blessing. Now, we have here this same word, by the way, is used in Psalm 84, 6. The rain also filleth the pools. And that's the word berikah. And it's also rendered blessing. And that is a very interesting thing, you see, and it's the upper pool. It's the word that's used for the Most High. And you'll remember that it is said of the one who came out to minister to Abraham that he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, the blessing 
of the Most High God was given at the end of the conduit when Jesus came into the world. I think this is quite interesting here, and it's no accident. And it says, to the highway of the fuller's pool. That's the second thing here, to the highway. Now we are told that the highway of the righteous is to depart from evil. That's Proverbs 16, 17. And it's the highway of holiness. And we're told in this book here, when we get to chapter 35, verse 8, a highway shall be there and a way, it shall be called the way of holiness. Now, the very interesting thing here is that what you have is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the psalmist said, Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the highways. The one that has the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's the fuller's field. Well, that's where they went down to wash clothes. That was the laundry in that day. And if you want to get your garments clean, you'll have to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. It's no accident that this man, Isaiah, was sent to this very interesting place. And even that has a wonderful spiritual meaning, as you can see. Now we have something else here. He's told here to take his son, Sheer Jashub. That's quite a name for a boy, but that's nothing compared to the second son that we'll be looking at when we get over to chapter 8. And believe me, that is some name to hang on a boy. By the way, and this one, of course, is bad enough. Now, the name of the boy is Sheer Jashub. Now, that means a remnant shall return. And the very interesting thing is here concerning this boy, that God has always had a remnant that has been true to him. And that is the thing that's important. There have been those that have tried to identify this boy with the virgin son, but there's no comparison at all. Anyone that will be very honest in reading this, you couldn't make any connection with that at all. Now notice what he had to say, and say unto him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resin with Syria and the son of Remaliah. Verse 5 now, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, and it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Now the tenor of the message 
here was to let Ahaz know that he need not fear the alliance of his two enemies in the north. God had determined that their venture was a failure. Now, the question is, how will this man Ahaz know it? To begin with, he's an unbeliever. He's a skeptic. He's a cynic. And how will he be convinced? Well, may I say this to you today? God has never asked anyone to believe anything that doesn't rest upon a firm foundation. I don't know why people think today that it means to blindly move into some area and say, Oh, I'm trusting God. My friend, that's very foolish. God never asks you to do that. You see, even our salvation today, we don't bring a little lamb. We look back in faith to a historical fact, coming into the world of the Son of God. It rests upon his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Those are historical facts. God never asks you to take a leap in the dark. He asks you to believe and trust something that rests upon a firm foundation. And it is a firm foundation, and it's the only foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, God is not asking you to build air castles out in space. And this unbeliever here is asked now to get on a foundation. God's not asking him to believe it just because Isaiah said it. And very candidly, if you are an honest person and an unbeliever and you really want to know, God will let you beat your music out. You'll come to a faith if you really mean business. And my experience has been the folk today that are unbelievers that I've dealt with. I had a young fellow say to me, he was a hippie up here in San Francisco. Oh, he said, I want to believe. I'm searching for the truth. Was he searching for the truth? Living with a girl in adultery. You know, the problem is that no man's eyes are closed today. There's no veil there except you put it there. And if you really want to know, you give up your sin and you want to turn to Christ, he'll make it real to you. The problem today is a great many really don't mean business with God at all. And this king here, he doesn't mean business. Listen to him. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Now I come to verse 11. Ask the sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, God says, I'll strengthen your faith. Now, I know you don't have any, but I'll give you faith. And the way I'll give it to you, ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign. Now, this man's a pious fraud, and there are a whole lot of those around today, too. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, listen to this pious pickle here. He says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, isn't that nice and sweet of him? He sounds so nice, but he is without doubt as big a hypocrite you'll find in the Scripture. This is the thing that I think makes God sick. I think it makes him really sick at his tummy today. It's this kind of crowd that in the church, God says he's going to spew out of his mouth someday. 
And that's exactly what you have here. God says, I'm going to give you a son. I hope you won't mind me telling this little story about a Sunday school class of little juniors, boys and girls. And the teacher was giving them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to tell you, she was laying it on pretty heavy and thick. She told about that man that fell among thieves. My, he'd been beaten up, lying there in his blood, you know, and it was gushing out everywhere. And she really laid it on, then told about the priest and the Pharisee, and finally the Good Samaritan. Then she wanted to clinch it by making an application. She went around the class, and she said to this little girl, says, now what would you have done? And this little girl says, oh, I would have done what the Good Samaritan did, and I would have stayed there and nursed him a few days. Well, the next little boy, he didn't want to be outdone. He says, I would have got him a box of candy. And around it went and finally came to a little girl. And I tell you, she had her face all puckered up. And she said to her, says, what would you do? And she says, I think I'd throw up. Well, believe me, the teacher had really painted a picture. And that little girl was honest, by the way. And I thank God to this type of thing. That's what he says to the church in Laodicea. I think I'm going to throw up. He says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. My friend, don't think you're being pious when you say, oh, I won't test God. God says, test me, try me, and see if I'm not good. All these folk today, they make me weary. And I have fatigue when I talk to some pious folk in the way that they say that they're just going to step out on faith. My friend, wait till God puts a rock underneath you. Wait till God gives you pretty definite leading before you make a fool of yourself and bring down upon the cause of Christ criticism today. Now, God says to him, he said, Hear ye now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? And that's what God says, you make me tired. I don't like that at all. Now, God says, you won't ask for a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. Not to you, Ahaz. You are a fraud. You are a pseudo-king to begin with, though you're in the line of David. But there's going to come one later on. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Who? To the house of David. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son shall call his name Emmanuel. God put a foundation under it. And if you want to know whether the virgin birth is true or not, you can find out if you turn and read the four Gospels. God has put a good solid foundation under this great truth today. And you're just being pious when you say, I don't think it's necessary to believe the virgin birth. Now, if when you come to Christ, you may not know enough to know about the virgin birth. All you've done is trusted him as Savior. But no Christian can deny a virgin birth. And if you're willing to look at the record, let God put a foundation under you, you'll believe the virgin birth. That's the meaning, I think, of this entire passage of Scripture. Now, he says before this child is even weaned, and that both kingdoms will have been gone, and they were. Because at the time the Lord Jesus was born there in Bethlehem, 
they had already been to captivity, all of them. And the whole 12 tribes, they had all come back. Not all of them, a very small remnant, even of Judah. And there were Levites that came. And of the other tribes, they were there. But it was just a remnant when he came to the earth. This is a remarkable chapter. Next time, we're going to take up chapter 8. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, as we come to the 8th chapter of the book of Isaiah, we find here that the son of the prophet was named before he was born, and the invasion of Emmanuel's land by the Assyrian was predicted before the child was weaned. And all of that, of course, took place in that day. And we're in a section now. It began with chapter 7. It goes through chapter 12. And it's a series of prophecies that were given during the reign of Ahaz. And you'll recall he was a godless man. And it's well to keep that before us as we go through this section here. Now, we come to this very remarkable statement in the first four verses, the prediction of the birth of the prophet's second son as a sign. And we are told here, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen, concerning, and notice now this name here, and it's some name, concerning Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Now, if you thought Sheer Jashub that we had back in the last chapter was quite a name, try this one out now for size. How would you like to carry this cognomen through the rest of your life? And this is what this boy apparently did. I do not know what his nickname was. They may have shortened this down and called him Mayor, or they might have called him something else. They could have called him Hash or Baz, but Mayor Shalal, Hash Baz, is quite a name. Now, why were these two boys given these most unusual names? And verse 18 in this chapter is self-explanatory, and it will help us now in understanding the last chapter and this chapter also. Verse 18, "...behold I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Zion." Now, these children are signs, and that's the reason they are given these most unusual names. Now, the name here that we have before us is a name that I think probably we ought to look at for a moment. It means hasten booty, speed prey. What does that mean? Well, I would say that the meaning is just simply this. God is against those that are against us. And Paul put it like this, If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, this was also a message for this man that was on the throne, Ahaz, a godless man. Now, God is trying to reach him. 
And the thing that Isaiah to do, and this is a direct word to Isaiah, he's to get a great big tablet. I do not know just what kind it would be, but he was to get this large tablet, and it's one that could be hung up in a prominent place like a billboard, and he is to write on it with a man's pen. Now, actually, it means the stylus of a frail mortal man. And what God is saying is this, I want it written so that the most humble person that's in the kingdom can see this and read it and understand this strange compound word that is here. Now, will you notice that God is trying to get a message through to this man on the throne? And he's used the firstborn, Shear, Jashub, and that was quite a name. And now we have Mayor Shalal, Hashbaz, and that means hasten booty, speed prey, and simply God's against those that's against us. That is a message for this man. Now, notice the second verse. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, or for the record, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberichiah. Now, we got some more pretty good names. Now, what you have here is Uriah. That means Jehovah is my light. And Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. And Jeberichiah means Jehovah will bless. And here you have it. It's a very interesting combination, is it not? Thus, the one witness says by his name, Jehovah is my light. And the other says, Jehovah's purpose is to bless. And the offspring of that is the grace of God. That is, he'll never forget his people. Now, that's interesting, is it not? You see, in all of the actions of Isaiah, what he's doing, there is a message for these people. In other words, he's speaking to them really by television. He's acting this out, writing this out, putting up so that the people will get it. In other words, it's a picture parable. And our Lord used that method also. And one of the reasons was this, that people will look at the picture or hear a picture. And you can listen to a picture. And that's what you have here. You know, they call the television day the boob tube. It's amazing how some of us will sit in front of that idiot box and look at things that you and I, under normal circumstances, in a different situation, we wouldn't waste our time. Isn't that amazing? God knows the inclination of mankind, and so he's trying to get through a message here to his people. And this is the way that he does it. Now, in verse 3, we see the working out of this. Isaiah says, And I went unto the prophetess, that was his wife, Mrs. Isaiah, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name 
Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Now, the child's name was given to him before he was born, and this is the name. Now, will you notice, verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother. He won't be able to say, Mommy and Daddy. And before he's able to say, Mommy and Daddy, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. In other words, this enemy in the north that's planning to come against you is going to be taken away into captivity. Now, it won't be because of the brilliant military ability of this man uh, has to work out a strategy that'll give him victory. It's due to the sovereign grace of God that this will take place. God's making that very clear. Will you notice verse 5? The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, that go softly and rejoice in resin and Remaliah's son. Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. Now this is another remarkable passage of Scripture. The people refuseth Shiloh. Now, the waters of Shiloh. What are the waters of Shiloh? Well, there is a contrast made here with the flood of waters that's in the seventh verse here. Bring up the waters of the river, strong and many. Well, that's evidently the Tigris-Euphrates River. That's where Assyria was located. And they come down like a flood. But in contrast to that are the waters of Shiloh. Well, the waters of Shiloh, and Shiloh means sent. It's in contrast or an antithesis to the Euphrates. And the Euphrates comes down like a great flood. But Shiloh, it's gentle. It ripples as a brook. And here the contrast is made. Euphrates represents judgment, and God's given a message. You remember it was Shakespeare that said, Tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. Well, Shiloh, softly flowing, and it was that little spring that is there, not doing much today, but it did in that day, and does today to a certain extent. It flows between Mount Zion and Mount Moriah. And if you're listening and you've got that blood-tipped ear today, you're going to hear a voice sweeter than even the rippling music of this stream as it flows down from between Zion and Mount Moriah. And may I say to you, what a message is in that little stream. It's a story of grace. And Mount Zion is in contrast to Mount Sinai that stands for law. And Moriah, that's where Abraham offered his son. That's where David bought the threshing floor of Araunah. 
And that's where Solomon put up the temple. And down at the end of that great shaft of rocks is Golgotha, where Christ was crucified. And that speaks of grace, too, because here is where God provided himself a lamb. He spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own son. And so what we have here is God is speaking grace to this man. God says, I'll spare you. And if you'll only but turn to me. And now will you notice verse 8, he shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow, go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. Now you see, God permitted the Assyrian to cover the land, but never permitted him to take Jerusalem. Now, verse 9, associate yourselves, O ye people, ye shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all ye of far countries, gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Now, this is a warning against nations who form an alliance against God's land. And beginning with chapter 13, we are going to have a series of messages to the nations that were contiguous to Israel, or at least had dealings with them in that day, and the judgment of God that has come upon those nations. And that section from 13 that goes all the way up to 35 is, to my judgment, one of the most remarkable sections in the Word of God. Most of it is fulfilled prophecy. God says that you'll never succeed against his purpose here upon the earth. And it's interesting today that the nations of the world no longer seek wisdom from God and counsel from God, because God does have a purpose, and his purpose will primarily prevail. And if a nation goes the other direction, judgment will come, of course. Now he goes on to say, "...take counsel together, it shall come to naught. Speak the word, it shall not stand, for God's with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of the people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom the people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid." Now. Judah was not to be alarmed by the confederacy. And it was fear that it caused those in the north to unite. And God urges them not to fear their fear, as he says here. In other words, they were not to turn to another ally themselves, which would probably have been Egypt, which they did later on, and which brought a very great tragedy to the land. Now he says here, sanctify, this is verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. They were to fear God above and look to him. Either he is to be their salvation or a stone of stumbling. Notice what he says, verse 14, he shall be for a sanctuary but for a stone of stumbling, for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare, 
to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Someone asked Cromwell once why he was such a brave man. And he had that reputation, by the way, that he was one of the bravest men that ever lived. He said, I have learned that when you fear God, you have no man to fear. And here is the same thing that Paul speaks of. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. And that is a tremendous thing. The Lord Jesus said, either you fall on this stone, and he is that stone, you fall on him for salvation, rest upon him. He's the only foundation you can rest on. You fall on him, you'll be saved. But if he, the stone, falls on you, it grinds you to powder. That is, if he judges you. You see, you have two options. You can either accept him or you can reject him. And then here's another remarkable statement. Sanctify the Lord of hosts. And you find Peter using that in 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And that is something that I believe today that God's people need to do. There is this light thinking about God, a lack of reverence for him, a lack of reverence for the Word of God, actually ridiculing sometimes things that are sacred, making light of things that should not be made light of. And you and I need to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Multitudes of people today are not convinced the Lord's in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. If they believe, friends, he was in your church on Sunday morning, they wouldn't be down at the beach. They wouldn't be out in the picnic area. They would not be mowing the backyard. They'd be with you. You and I haven't convinced them, have we? Now we find out as we move on down here, verse 19, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, shall not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead. And this is something that is reappearing again today. I wrote this many years ago. In fact, now, about 15 years ago. God forbids his people to dabble in this satanic system. When a people turn from God, they generally go after the occult and abnormal. And I'm not going to dwell on it, don't have time to, but there is a great turning today to the occult, a great turning to the spirit world and to demonology. We have here in Southern California a church of Satan. There's one up in the Bay Area. They're spreading. Many are worshiping the devil today. And then even Christians dabble in this. Many of them talk about their group that are casting out demons. My friend, I'm not in that business. I'm preaching the gospel of the grace of God and the word of God, and that will take care of all the demons. I say that we need to let this thing alone today, for it's a dangerous thing, and it's growing by leaps and bounds. And if you don't think there's reality to it, 
you're wrong, there's reality in it, just as the fact that Satan is a reality. And this is the thing that he gives a warning against, and that warning holds good today.